If there's one thing we haven't taught us, uh, our culture, our Mennonite culture, is to sit on the front benches. Uh, I'm not sure how we can change that, but that's all good, I guess. Um, this morning we were complaining as ushers, the front bench was empty, and we were full in the back. So anyhow, so be it. Well, anyhow, welcome to Bible School. It's good to be here. I um, am anxious to see um, maybe some of your thoughts on what you're thinking about the whole idea of stewardship. Um, that was the subject given to me by uh, Rand on his, his team, and I uh, appreciate that subject. It's exciting. It's, um, the whole idea of stewardship is, is weaved throughout Scripture from one end to the other. Um, so let's start. What, what is stewardship? What is a steward? Um, I'd be open for some information from you. What do you think of steward referring in Scripture? What is steward or the, the idea of stewardship? Anybody have any ideas? What do you want to hear about this week? Okay, begins with receiving. First, there has to be a steward or a hierarchy, right? And then we are working for the steward, okay? Anything else? The ultimate goal is to give away. Okay. To give it to the master. Okay, that is us as people, as his, as his creation, exactly. Very good. Caretakers, something that comes up very frequently in Scripture. We are just vessels for God's kingdom. We are here to do something um, with what he's given us. If we do nothing, we are poor stewards. We are not doing what the Father has put us here to do. Good. Anything more? Okay. Kind of sets the foundation, but you know, one of the things that God, I think, has done a pretty good job at is making or giving us something that we really want to do. Uh, people in general, our makeup is to want to take care of things. Um, there may be a few lazy ones among us, but really our makeup as human beings is to plant, to grow, to water, to harvest that's kind of in our DNA, right? But first there has to be a lawgiver or a moral lawgiver. Somebody, Jesus, God says, I'm going to create man to do my work. So God in his creation beautifully says, well, first of all, he creates all these animals and separates the dry land to make for make room for these human beings that he's going to create. And I think probably the most exciting part of God's creation had to be the human beings, certainly. Is that not true? I mean, I think he had fun making animals. But you wait till the final day when he starts to put together this person with arms and legs and a nose. And not only that, everyone is unique. We are all different. We are built for a plan. We are built for a purpose. Speaking about the arm makes me think of it. Yesterday, there was a gentleman at the wedding that lost his arm about a year and a half ago. And he went on to say, and I asked him, because I have a cousin that lost his arm, and I asked him some of the details of living without an arm. He was right-handed, and now he has to write with his left hand. We were created in a pretty unique way, but when we lose a member... It's tough, it's hard, and you have to relearn. 
but I think God did a really good job. Let's, let's talk about the, let's get a few verses under our belt here about kind of the stewards, the, the words or the, the steward and stewardship words used in Scripture. Um, familiar verses, none of these are very new. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything, everything that is in the world and all who live in it. That's basically the idea of stewardship. Um, Deuteronomy 10.4 has the idea, To the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything that is in it. So everything that is in the earth, we are called to kind of um, just master it or bring it to its fullest potential. One of the verses in Leviticus 25, this is the whole concept when God said, Six years, you're going to farm the place, you're going to grow things, and the seventh year, you're going to give the land rest, all right? So that whole idea is in, in Leviticus here. It says, the land must not be sold because the Lord, because the land is mine, and you are but strangers and sojourners with me, the King James says. Another translation says, you're aliens and tenants. You're only caretakers of what I have done for you, what I've given you. Let's turn in our Bibles to David's reading in, um, it's Deuteronomy, I think it is, Deuteronomy. No, it's 1 Chronicles. Let's go to 1 Chronicles first in chapter 29. And I'm going to read to you some of the kind of the interesting, I think it's one of the most interesting pieces of Scripture, particularly from David's perspective, when David is ready now to give the kingship to his son and he starts to just praise and in adoration he is giving his basically life story and, and telling God how good of a job he's done really in, in creating human beings and then his response to that. All right let's start in verse 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 10. It says, wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation and David said, blessed be thou Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. First Chronicles 29, verse 10, verse 11 now. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. For we are strangers before thee, and sojourners, and were all... Our father, as were all our fathers, our days on the earth are as a shadow, and there is none abiding. O Lord our God, all this store that we have prepared to build thee in house for thine holy name cometh of thine hand, and is all thine own. I know also, my God, that thou triest the heart, and hast pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of mine heart, I have willingly offered all these things, and now have I seen with joy thy people which are present here to offer willingly unto thee 
O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of thy people and prepare their heart unto thee and give unto Solomon my son a perfect heart to keep the commandments, thy commandments, thy testimonies, thy statutes, and to do all these things and to build the palace for the which I have made provision. And David said unto all the congregation, Now bless the Lord your God, and all the congregation blessed the Lord God of their fathers and bowed down their heads and worshiped the land and the king. And I'll stop with the reading there. I think David understood to a point that he is only a piece, a small piece of what God is intending to do with the human race. He understood that his time is kind of gone. He's passing the torch to the next generation. Unfortunately, Solomon lived some good years, but later on we know through some of the readings in Scripture that he really fell away from the truth and was not following the biblical principles. But I think David, in after all his sin and his running from people, he started to understand, and now at the end of his life, he's understanding that really what I've done and what God has done for me is, that's what it is. That's what life is. I've done my job, and it's time to move on. Stewardship. Realizing that my part in God's kingdom is to hold tight and to be concerned about the things that God is concerned about. The whole idea of a steward, let's think about that a little bit. Um, if you fly on an airplane, you will be served by what they used to call a stewardess. Today it's more of a flight attendant. So that person is concerned about your needs. I'm told in the ship industry, the word steward or the, uh, the title steward is used a lot more today than on airplanes. So a person on a ship is concerned about the goods of someone else that someone else owns. So he's, he's a caretaker. So bring that in perspective with what God wants from his people. First of all, God created, and then he gives Adam and Eve the awesome responsibility to care and to nourish, nurture and to nourish the, the Garden of Eden. Sadly, man has way too often failed on doing his part. Okay. Do you have more on that? Well, he, he, he was a steward. He wasn't concerned about himself. He was concerned about passing on to someone. Okay. Isn't that what a steward is? I, I, I mean, basically, a, yeah, a steward takes care of somebody else's stuff or possessions. So, yeah, sure. I mean, that, that could be implied there as well. He was very concerned that someone else would do the job maybe better than he did. And sometimes our... Goals and ambitions are actually um, enjoyed more by our children, our next generation, the generations behind us. Um, 
Interestingly, one of the things that I've discovered in, in, um, as you read and you follow the news, for example, is how poorly um, some people do the thing of stewardship, of taking care of somebody else's money. Now, let's, let's say, for example, you pay your taxes. And, yeah, we should pay our taxes. But really, the government, sometimes it's not very good at taking care of that money that, that we've given them. And sadly, that's, that's the case. Um, in, in 2007, there was, there was a, um, a gentleman by the name of, of David, if I can get it here, he was the, they called him the comptroller of the, of the um, American money, basically. His name was David M. Walker. And this is a, is a position that is in act, is action today. And he ruled during the time, or his, his position was during the time of George W. Bush. And one of the things that he was so concerned about, and we, we say that we are good as Christians of, of taking care of what God has given us, and his big concern, and he wrote a 30-page letter and said, this is the title, it says, A Call for Stewardship. This is from a totally political perspective. And he says that Congress and people in political positions need to be more careful about how they spend money and how they, what they do with it. Uh, in, in George Washington's time, there was like four different cabinets. And in Bush's time, there was like 30 different cabinets. And they all had 30 or 40 or 50. Or, it was just incredible, the amount of people. So... His, his idea, this is 2007, this is 22 years ago, he said, we need to do a better job in taking care of people's money. And it almost, if you read the script, it almost seems like he's writing it from a Christian perspective. But that's, God's principles do work. When we, even when we implement them from a political level, I think they do work. And I, I think we should be concerned as Christians. I think we should be the best in, in taking care of our things that God has given us as Christians, and I think we could do better in, in taking care and being very concerned about what we do with it. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about, um, they gave me three subtitles, and one was the stewardship of the gospel, and then tomorrow night we'll talk about the stewardship of our time, and then we'll talk about stewardship with our resources the third evening, and then the final evening and have to do more with our mind, our will, and our, and our emotions, stewardship from that perspective. So let's let's turn now to um, let's turn now to another scripture reading in Psalm 104 and see what David has to say. I think David has so much to say about this whole subject. Over and over again, uh, when you do some studying, you you refer to some of the, the writings of David, and I want you to notice how he is addressing God or the creator, the giver of all the things that we enjoy. And I want you to notice the who's, which is question, and then the he's. I'm just going to kind of skip down across some of these verses, and then toward the end, it'll be the thou. And he's acknowledging God. So in, verse, in Psalm 104, the fifth verse, it says, Who hath laid the foundations of the earth, that it should not be removed forever? Thou coverest it with, a deep, with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. And now verse 10, he sendeth the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. That's the he. 
And then in verse 13, this is talking about God, what all he does for his, the humankind, the human race. He watereth the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of thy works. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man that he may bring forth food out of the earth. Verse 16, the trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knoweth his going down. And there was 29, thou hidest thy face, they are troubled, thou takest away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. And verse 32, he looketh on the earth, and it trembleth, and toucheth the hills, and they smoke. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We are just these little human beings on the earth that must follow a divine being. I think God is so concerned that we do things his way. Um, Job, remember when Job and his three friends were criticizing him and telling him how wicked of a person he was? And then God finally comes on the picture and he says, um, you're doing okay, I believe. I think in, in, in short he was saying that. But he says, whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. So whatever you've lost, it was mine anyhow. Our loss is not really our loss. It's God's loss. You know, I remember the story goes of a guy, of a gentleman a number of years ago. He said that, um, you know, he, he gave his car to God. And he said, God, if, um, thanks for the car. And a few days later, he wrecked it, and he said, God, you know, he, he was so convinced that it's not his car. He said, God, well, if you want to wreck your car, go ahead, but it's not mine anyhow. So if we have that concept, if we understand that the things that we have and drive and, and do are not ours, I think the concept of, of God owning that really is a whole lot, under, whole lot easier to understand. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness, and I think God has given us so much to think about in the idea of stewardship. I'd like to think about now <clears throat> a few uh, principles of stewardship. Four principles, four ideas of, of stewardship. And the first one has, um, is the idea of ownership. And we talked about this a little bit, but if we are seriously concerned about the way God wants us to do things. I'm going to turn to Psalm 24. Very familiar verse. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas, he established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? And it's he that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Somehow, I believe, when God created man, and put him in the garden, and man understood the perfection of the garden, and understood that God really is the one that needs the glory. And I think Adam did a pretty good job of that for a while, until one day he said, well, 
hath God said? Yea, hath God said? And through that, sin entered the world. And because of that, I think it's harder for us sometimes to understand that God is really the giver of the things that we enjoy. Let's go to the next one. Responsibility. What is our responsibility as stewards? In the beginning, God created in Genesis. The first chapter, the first verse. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the earth. I believe it's really hard for any person, any Christian, to fully understand. Let me back up. I think it's hard for any person to understand God's way if he doesn't, first of all, understand the creation. Creation is such a basic principle, but it must start with creation. And as we follow through the creation story and then follow the the way that they, cruci- or they, they, first of all, sacrificed, and then after that, that Jesus came as a redemptive lamb. And I think we can understand a whole lot better the idea of stewards and of caretakers if we understand that creation and then the law and then redemption. I think the Christian should be the best person that really that understands the concept of stewardship. Let's think of a few characters in Scripture. Who do you think in Scripture, I I want your feedback again, who do you think was one of the best examples and understood the idea of stewardship in Scripture? Some of the Bible characters. That is exactly who I thought. Anyone else? Is there others? There might be others that have done a good job as well. Abraham. Abraham. Okay. Mm-hmm. He owned everything already, but yes, he taught us a lot. Okay, okay. Not quite as familiar of a story, but truth, yep. Okay, that's another one I thought did a very good job. You know, he asked Jesus questions, or I'm thinking of Peter, I guess. Peter was the one that asked, you, asked some good questions to Jesus and said, um, where does it say one place uh, about the steward? And... Um, Jesus gave him a really good answer. Anyhow, Peter that was. But Paul as well. There, there's so many. Joseph is the one that, that I really thought, you know, how could a person without the Spirit of God somehow, whatever kind of spirit they had within them at, in the Old Testament, but he really understood the concept of stewardship. I mean, being sold as a slave, foreign country, then being a steward, and it actually uses that word in scripture. He was a steward. And then he has taken, he's Potiphar's steward, and Potiphar's wife accuses him and he's taken to prison. And just the sequence that happened over the next years or whatever it was, how he was in prison for a while and then was released. You talk about a person that has really understood the concept of that I am God's mouthpiece and I will allow him to do what he needs to do to bring about his plan 
okay? So there's just so many details. And then when he, when he came out, he still understood the concept of stewardship. And he took a whole nation to the next level. And because of poverty and because of the famine, he took that nation to another level. And I, I just think he was, to me, just one of the best examples of understanding that he was here for God and he took good care of his surroundings and things that he was in charge of. And even though Potiphar's wife accused him, yet he took that as an encouragement and as a uh, disciplined himself and went to the next level. For every beast of the field is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. That's in Psalm 50. So we think we own property. We think we own things. I think that the idea that we need to understand is that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Doesn't he so much more own our real estate, our, you name it. I mean, he just, he is so much in charge. We can do nothing without, we can't get out of bed, I believe, without the muscles that God has given us and the ability to just make things happen. Go ye into all the world is the Great Commission, Jesus' final words. David is asking the Lord for help because he thinks that the godly man is ceasing in, in chapter I think that's in the Psalm, maybe 50, uh, Psalm 12, I guess it is. Isaiah 55, verse 11, My word shall not return unto me void, but it will accomplish that which I desire. So I think throughout Scripture, he is giving us the whole idea of stewardship and take care of the things that I do. If you do my principles, if you follow them, I will do my responsibility, and God never falls short of what he has asked of his people. I, I think maybe the best example of stewardship is maybe a farmer and planting, and we talked about that a little bit ago. Um, there's not many farmers among us anymore, but the idea of sowing and watering and harvesting, I think, encapsulates the whole idea of stewardship to the fullest. If we take care of what God has given us, we will reap bountifully. And so much more as we um, encourage our children, encourage the next generation to do and say and, and really to live for God, I think is a powerful testimony of what God can do with us. Number three is the whole idea of accountability. Matthew 12, Jesus says, But I tell you, everyone will give an account on the day of judgment for every idle word. Luke 15 is the story of the prodigal son. If we read and understand the prodigal's intention, his goal... Verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, took his journey into a far country, and wasted his substance with riotous, riotous living. And when he had spent 
all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he said, sent him into the fields to feed swine. And we know the story. It goes on and on. And then in verse 18, it says, I will rise to go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. I think he understood the idea of being a servant. And servant and steward, steward kind of go hand in hand in scripture a lot. If he, he was just saying, just make me a servant. I don't have to be your son anymore. I will just be your servant. I will, I will do what you say. And humbly he came to the Father. And I believe that Jesus wants to do that to all of us. I think he is interested and concerned about our well-being. And let's just be God's servants, God's steward, God's mouthpiece. And I think we will be blessed. We have so much that um, I think I need to learn in that whole regard of what I own and what God owns. Really, God owns it all. I'd like to talk about the principle of the reward a little bit. <clears throat> you know, no reward is worth it unless there is a little bit of sweat and toil that goes with it. If you receive something for nothing, there's really nothing to get out of it. But if you receive a plaque for something that you've done, or even monetarily, it's, a, it's rewarding. It's a whole lot more. And I, I think that is kind of the concept of, of working for God. We are his workmanship. We are his steward. We are his servants. And the reward will come later. And obedience, I believe, is the number one thing, that we just follow God in obedience and, and following him all the way. And I believe God will reward and bless his servants abundantly. Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan says, he writes this, he says, I saw in my dream the two men enter the gate. As they did, they were transfigured. They had garments that shined like gold. Harps and crowns were given them, the harps for praise and the crowns for honor. Then I heard in my dream all the bells in the city rang again for joy. It was said to them, enter into the joy of thy Lord. There's a, there's a few things that we need to understand, I believe, that first of all, that God owns everything. If we are concerned about our lives and about our future, the best way to do that is to understand that God really, we are working for him. We are his workmanship. We are created in his image. We have so much to learn. On. I have so much to learn on that. Believe that God owns it all. Number two, understand the responsibility that he has entrusted us with. What else would you want to do with our lives? How hard do you want to work? Or how much do you want to do? How much do you like to please the Father? Do you want to give it just half of what you can, or should we give it all? I think God is asking for more than half. He's asking for all in our entire lives to follow him and to be servants of the master, to serve him in ways that really take some sweat and toil from us. Remain accountable for how we 
act with as a steward. We should be accountable. We need to be accountable to him and him alone. I think men around us, people around us can help us. But can we be accountable to God, first of all, and then accountable to men for how we serve God? And then remember, our reward and treasure is found in having an eternal perspective. You know, I think we are skewed so often with the things around us, with the people around us. We've been given so much, but I think as Christians we need to remember that we so often, it's easy to take our eyes off the focus. And let's remember the reward. Let's remember that we are accountable to God himself, how we take care of those things that he's given us. Preserving the gospel is, should be a part of our vocabulary as well, I think. Preserving what God has give us, given us. Somehow, we need to treasure this piece of information that he's given us. The Bible and what it, is, what it can do for us. Oh, the Bible can't transform us. But the spirit of God and the things that we read within it will help us. The gospel is a gospel of peace. The gospel that we have in our hands it is the gospel of the cross. It is a gospel of forgiveness. It is a gospel of restitution. It is a gospel of responsibility. I think one of the main things that we have to do in our lives is to discover God and to understand what he wants out of, his, out of the Christian and understanding that we have been bought with a price. We have so little to do with the way things operate and go, but yet God wants to teach us to rely and to trust him in every area of life. Blessings to you. Turn your psalm books to 894. 894. A charge to keep, I have. Uh,
My assignment this evening is a bit personal. If I understood correctly, um, the title that I would have, that I ended up with, and I'll explain a bit why this title, allowing my story to become his story. And I, I'm, I'm very sensitive to relating personal experiences and not giving the image or the, the idea that it's through these personal experiences that now I have learned all the lessons that God gave me opportunity to learn or to experience and grow in. Because I recognize that for all of us here this evening, we're in this journey of life together. And the personal things that I experienced, uh, whether it would be personal, physical problems, broken bones, the loss of a spouse, you know that uh, the couples here this evening, if you do the math, half of you as individuals will likely experience the loss of a spouse. And maybe it's something you don't think about until you're 40, 50, or 60, and I was in my 60s and still hadn't really considered that possibility. And I'm not sharing these things to uh, bring fear or alarm, but there's five things that, uh, well, let me back up. Um, you know, as I look over the congregation here, there's a lot of new people knew in that I'm not that familiar with you. I don't, I'm not that well acquainted with you. And by the way, thank you for welcoming me, welcoming me here at Weavertown. And maybe you wonder how often I will attend. Well, I plan to attend regularly if, if I can get the minister's approval. Anyway, uh, some things haven't changed a lot. And just as information for those who are newer here at Weavertown, about 45 years ago, I was part of the Weavertown Youth Group. Mine Road had started at the time, but they didn't have a youth group the first number of years. And my wife, Mary Ellen, my former wife, Mary Ellen, would have also grown up here and been in the youth group. And the fall of 19, she changed her address to heaven. My intent, my desire is that everything is said this evening exalts and brings glory to our Savior. And you know, when we talk about exalting, that's like lifting up and magnifying. But we can't really make God bigger than he is. It's just that we, we share our experiences and encourage each other to, to realize maybe in a, in a fuller way how big God really is. And we never really get to the bottom of that. In Isaiah 25, 1, it reads this way, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You know, whatever you're experiencing, just be aware that nothing takes God by surprise. It does us. 
but nothing takes God by surprise. That means he's well-equipped, well-prepared, has a plan to carry us through. He's still waiting at the well. I'm thinking of the picture or the story, the account where Jesus was at the well and this woman, he met this woman there and she had great needs. You know, Jesus is still waiting at the well. Jesus' feet were growing weary as he journeyed on his way. So he rested at a wellside, a comfort in the heat of day. There he waited for a woman, black with sin and bound for hell. When she arrived, he plainly told her, what you need is not in the well. And he's still waiting by the well. And he's holding out his hand. And if you'll drink the living water, you won't have to thirst again. He's been waiting by the well side, knowing that you, I, would be passing by. So take advantage of the moment. He's not gone. He's still waiting by the well. I made reference to the fall of 19 when I became a widower. And it was, oh, let me just, uh, so that you know the, what I'm, the points that I wanted to bring out. There's five things that I want to call your attention to this evening. So the comments that I'm making and the experiences that I'm sharing, uh, these are the five reminders that, became, that I became keenly aware of in my personal life. And number one is the call to worship. And the second one is to think right. And the third one is to remember what God has done, the good things, the blessings. And number four is to trust his heart. And then number five, that I don't need to fear, that I have no fear in my heart for what God has planned. So the fall of 19, I became a widower, and it was just a few months after that then that we all experienced the shutdown because of the COVID pandemic. So I was struggling with the adjustment of living alone, but when the COVID restrictions came on, that moved this to another whole level. Uh, just to explain a bit what my experience was, we had a business that, that is based at, at my home, an ag business. And we weren't sure how serious to take the first weeks of the scare. And so we religiously kept our distance even from each other at work. And I was living by myself. And this went on for about five weeks. And then some of the children said, though, you know, we haven't been anywhere either. Why don't you at least come? supper I should have asked for your forbearance so I went and uh, sat around the table and we held hands before the meal and all of us said that hit me that for five weeks I hadn't come close to another person so I went home, and I did a little word study, and guess what my word was? I wanted to know what the definition of alone was. It's having no one else present, and, or something that's confined, 
alone is when a person is by themselves. Lonely is when a person feels abandoned and sad due to isolation. Then I did a little further word study, and if you like words, here's, a, here's maybe a new one for you. A person who lives alone is a trogelite. I thought that sounded better than calling myself a hermit. And I remembered a few years before that, hearing a beautiful solo part of the song, We Are Not Alone, Our God Is With Us. You know that any, at any point in life, we're either about to enter a storm, or we're in one, or we're coming out of a storm. So be sensitive to the people around. Because right now, here this evening, you'll find people with, in all three stages. Minister to each other. And I'm referring to storms as life situations engineered by God to demonstrate our inadequacies so that we will look at His sufficiency as our only way through. We, it's kind of like running up against and things just aren't working out. But in the middle of the storm, we need to learn to trust. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think of what trust is really like. And maybe it can be illustrated uh, by a personal experience that would have taken place for me about a half a year later. I had the opportunity to go with a group of men, 18 men, to uh, northern Idaho for horseback riding, and there was discipleship experiences with that. And I feel like I'm losing something here. Just as long as it's just surface, right? Anyway, so we went to Idaho and uh, got on these horses. Well, before we got on the horses, I was concerned that the horse that, that they gave me was the calm kind. I, I'm not as experienced as some. So I said, just give me a, a well-trained, uh, calm horse. And they did. They, gave, they matched me up with a three-quarter horse that was neck-reined, of all things. And a lot of you know what that means. You, you, all you have to do is just, just lay the rein against the side of the neck, and the horse responds. Beautiful. So for four days, we went up different ways. Had a campsite halfway up. The, we're talking out in the high hills. In the top of the hill, you could see... Uh, Glacier National Park, you could see Canada, and you could see the state of Washington, and we were in Idaho. But to get there, we had to go up a mountain, riding a horse on steep inclines so that to sit comfortably on the way up, you basically leaned into the horn of the, the saddle, and the way back, you were laying almost all the way back. But as we were going up through, we got to these narrow passes. I'm talking narrow, where the mountain was like here, and I couldn't see the other side because of the horse's belly. It was just down. No guardrail. Just this narrow path. Uh, trust, you know, just, just trust. And I complained about it one time, and they said, the horse is more concerned about falling than I am. I didn't believe him. <laughs> In fact, it got so bad at one point, they recommended that we get off and lead the horse. Uh, so that's... That's riding horse. But you know, life is more than riding a horse. But there's times when you, you really can't see. 
It looks like there's no protection or there's, it's just impossible. God is more concerned than we are. He's more able. He's equipped. Learn to trust him. And I'm pointing these lessons out. Not that I've learned it, but I was given the opportunity. See, I don't always understand the will of God. And sometimes I don't like what his will is for my life. In fact, I've experienced different times where, and I'm, I'm just talking, I'm not just talking in a 24-hour, but over a long, longer period of time where we made plans. But because of circumstances, we had to change plans. And then plans crashed. That's a call to worship. When that happens, it's a call to worship. Speak out loud his goodness, his mercy. Thank the Lord for what his will is for your life. One evening, one summer evening, a few months later, I was returning home at about this time of the day, and, and it was about a half hour from sunset. And I noticed that there were some beautiful clouds and the sun was just moving into those clouds and I was preparing myself to witness a gorgeous sunset. As I turned in the driveway and looked with expectation to see the gorgeous sunset, the clouds had moved away and all it was was a red ball dropping into the horizon. Then it occurred to me that the beauty of a sunset is the clouds around it. Is that the way it is in life? Is that what adds beauty to one's life? When there's adversity, when plans crash, when things just don't seem to go. It's a call to worship. Another thing that happens is I deal with fear if I think that everything depends on me, that I have to micromanage it, that I have to figure it out, and that I have to come up with answers. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be ye thankful. Another point Another one of the points that I mentioned is uh, how we think. You know, the way you think determines how you act. My dad uh, doesn't live anymore. He had uh, one of the older ministers here at Weavertown was a, a very good friend of dad's, and they would have traveled together some, uh, Brother Chris Spiler. And I remember dad saying, that there was times when, when they would be uh, addressing church problems or relationship problems somewhere, and Brother Christ would repeatedly say, you need to think right. You need to think right. The way you think determines how you act. We're instructed to bring every thought into captivity. That, mean, 
under the control of Christ. Um, I saw a vivid example of this a number of years ago, sitting at Mine Road Church uh, Sunday morning. It was before we had air conditioning, and the windows were open. And it was right over the time when the thistles were heading out. Sitting back about halfway, a few of the boys had already sat towards the front, and I saw some thistle seeds come drifting in the window. And I thought, oh, this, this could cause a little bit of a stir. And, and these one seed particularly just came and rested on the, the young man's shoulder. And just without a second thought, it, it, he just flicked it off. And it picked up and went out the other window. Bringing every thought into captivity. We need to think right. If they're not pure and holy and just and of good report and the list is there, just don't dwell on it. So if, if thoughts come because of adversity uh, and, and you're tempted to become bitter or angry or frustrated, just somehow turn your heart to be thankful, to worship. And this is for all of us. Don't, I'm not wanting to focus too much on what my experience was, but I would just, just say enough that you can relate it to your experience, where you're at in life. You know, the greatest power that we possess is the power to choose. The greatest power that we possess is the power to choose. Satan's goal is to get us to accept and believe lies. Lies like God's withholding something from you. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. Or you blew it. You're not good enough. But we need to think right. And we need to choose. There's three ways that we tend to think wrong. And one is uh, that we have, we give in to imaginations. And imaginations are building my life on what we perceive. Or building my life on guesses. Just uh, imagining that what other people think. Or what could happen. Or becoming suspicious. Building my life on uncertainties. A number of years ago, uh, one of the winters when I was at the Calvary Bible School in the teacher's study, um, there was three men, me and two other men were, that were in the study at that time. And, and one of the men sat on this end of the study and the other on that end, and I think I was somewhere in the middle. And I, had, I needed to go upstairs to, to print something off. So I went up, and a few minutes later came back. And as soon as I opened the door... While I had been upstairs, the one teacher had wheeled over to the other one, and as soon as I opened the door, conversation stopped, and he wheeled back to his desk. It just, you know, there was just, that, that was interesting. Apparently, I wasn't supposed to hear it. Then I realized, just a minute or two later, I realized that I forgot something upstairs, so I went back up. And when I came down, the exact same thing happened again. Now I knew. What did I know? All I knew is that the one teacher was talking to the other and he wheeled away twice. But I could imagine six months later the, the one teacher called and he said, do you remember what happened in the teacher's study? I said, I do. And he told me what was going on and it's, it was okay. 
I, it was information between those two men and their wives that I had no business knowing. Now, you don't build your life on uncertainties or imaginations. Believing what is not true is more painful than the truth. Don't forget to remember. Remember what God has done. Remember what he has done. I had an experience a year ago that it took me several months till I felt um, it, it, was, it felt too sacred to share. But I'll share it here this evening. It was May of last year. All of a sudden, one day, within a couple hours' time, I realized that I had COVID, and I had, it put me on my back. And I was alone, and uh, knowing the nature of my dick cappiness, I never went to a doctor. I just weathered it for two weeks and uh, wasn't feeling the best. My children would check on me, and, and the one said that if you stop drinking water, you're gone in. So I drank water, at least made sure the glass was empty when they came into the room. So this had been two weeks, and it was starting to affect my head. Uh, I was very negative. I was depressed. The daughter that still lived at home then and wasn't married came over that evening, and we talked a little bit, and, and I said, uh, you know, I, I never felt this bad. I said, I'm not suicidal, but I see no reason to get up tomorrow morning. I'm just done. And we prayed together, and we both went to bed. About 3 o'clock, I woke up with a start, and I was healed. I never looked back, never experienced a weak moment, went to work that day. And ladies, I worked in the flower beds that evening yet. I was well. I was healed. But to add unique meaning for me is I remembered just when I was waking up that my wife was standing by the bedside and she had been there for a while. We didn't have any conversation, but it was a presence of holiness, radiance. Now, don't build theology on what I just shared. I'm saying what happened, and I'm not concluding that she was the healer. But God gave me that what in a dark moment. Gave me a picture of his care. And I hadn't even prayed for that specifically. Remember the things. Share them. See, the secret of survival in enemy territory, and we're all in it, is to remember what God has done. And sometimes we may have to verbalize what he's done. And I realize that uh, this is not, I didn't plan very well. Let me just go, and I don't want to go too fast because I want you to get the significance of this. But I have, I have uh, like 10 references, and there's just a quote in each one of these references that it's important for us to remember John 1.12, we are God's child. 1 Corinthians 12.27, we're a member of Christ's body. Ephesians 1.11, we're saints. Yes. Colossians 1.14, we're redeemed and forgiven. 
And Colossians 2.10, complete in Christ, lacking in nothing. Romans 8.1 and 2, free from condemnation. Ephesians 2.6, seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. Philippians 3.20, a citizen of heaven. Ephesians 1.5, adopted into God's family. And many, many daily blessings. Wrap your mind around who we, who we are, what we have. Proclaim that. That's one of the greatest tools of survival in enemy territory. And a lot of it basically happens in your thoughts. The greatest power we possess is the power to choose the decisions we make, to choose what to dwell on and what we think about. One of the, uh, there's, there's an Old Testament reference, and this was given as some, a, a backdrop for this, for, these, for this subject. And that is in Joshua 3, where the children of Israel crossed the Jordan, and they were to take stones and build a monument on the other side, so that later, their children would say, what, what's this all about? And then they would explain what God had done. I'm suggesting that life's experiences are meant to be shared. And I don't know what the monument looks like or how we engrave it on stones. Uh, I know one of the things that growing up would have been mottos on the wall. Statements that are, are just phrases. And uh, one of the, the mottos that I remember is if I would be sick on the couch, laying there and just staring at a motto, and it said it, there it was, again and again, you know. That's probably a lot of your experience. Just the stones. And then tell the story. See, the Ark of the Covenant was to go with the children of Israel. You'll find this in Joshua 3. The Ark of the Covenant had the manna, Aaron's walking stick, the rod that budded, and the stone tablets. And there was two cherubims that surrounded the mercy seat, and that was the dwelling place of God. And when God said, follow the ark, he was actually saying, follow me. So he was instructing the children of Israel to follow. God led the way, approached the rushing Jordan River, and the water had stopped 30 miles upstream, and all Israel crossed on dry ground. But the significant was, this, one of the significant things was, there were no wagon wheels that got stuck. There was no mud on their sandals, no water in their shoes, and most of all, no fear in their hearts. So when God tells you to walk through, to, to face life, that you have no fear in your heart. The path to the greatest potential is often straight through the greatest fear. For Joshua's people, assurance came as they stood on dry land looking back on Jordan. And I was going to take the time, but I don't think I will. I was going to have us sing a verse of Rock of Ages, Clef for Me. I think it would be, oh, that's one of my favorite songs. For us, assurance comes as we stand on the finished work of Christ. The river that we couldn't cross, Jesus crossed it for us. Our deliverance is complete. And like the Hebrews, we have been dramatically delivered. But are we deeply convinced are we settled about God's faithfulness? 
There's no mud on your sandals. There's no water on your robe. There's no sin on your record. No guilt attached to your name. Let there be no doubt in your heart. That you can have the assurance that you're in the will of God. Rest in your redemption. The future is bright. God's word is sure. His work is finished. You're a partner with God. There's a new season awaits you. God is too good to be unkind. God is too wise to be mistaken. And when I cannot trace his hand, I can always trust his heart. Sometimes our fiercest battles are fought when we seek with all our heart to trust God so fully that we see every misfortune as something he permits and wants to use. To know him so richly that we turn to no one and nothing else to experience what our souls long to enjoy. And you know, I believe, this is, this is my experience, that God always makes the first move. God created, God invited, and God hears, and God helps. We trust, we pray, we rejoice, and we go with God. There's a number of marvels in the scripture, and one of the marvels is that God actually hears us. And that... Uh, call upon him and he hears he answers a number of years ago actually when our family first went to Canada for a few years of service my, my mother was uh, not doing well and when we left we, were, we had the expectation that she probably wouldn't live till we come back it was difficult but she did. Actually, we came back then three years later and she lived for two more months. But I remember one of the last times that I talked to her on the phone. I was in Canada and I called mom because I heard that she had fallen again and had, uh, I think she had broken her shoulder. And we were talking briefly and her attention span because of the medication she was on was short. And after a while she said, Mel, don't hang up on me. Don't hang up on me. I'm still here. And I was there. I heard every word, but she couldn't hear my response. And that just... God never hangs up on us. Never. He wants us to call. He wants us to talk. Even when we don't understand his will... And we're broken because it, it hurts. It's not what, it wasn't in our plan. My prayer is that what I have, would have called your attention to this evening causes you to think about the opportunity as a call to worship and how important it is to think right.
and how helpful it is to remember what God has done and to know that you can always trust his heart and you never need to fear what he brings or what he may bring. Let's sing a verse of Rock of Ages. <clears throat> Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Thanks for coming tonight. Um, it is starting to rain outside, so if you want to walk over there, just be aware that you might get wet on your way back or on your way over. It's just beginning to rain. So the kids will be heading in just shortly to sing and watch the drama, so you're welcome to go across the road or stay over here in fellowship. So thanks for coming. You're dismissed.